Hello and welcome to the second season of the European Wound Management Association podcast, which is devoted to the prevention and management of diabetic foot ulceration. In this episode, we will be discussing the prevention and management of diabetic foot ulcers. My name is Samantha Holloway. I'm a reader and programme director in the Centre for Medical Education, School of Medicine, based at the College of Life and Biomedical Sciences at Cardiff University in the UK. I'm also the chair of the Education Committee of UMA. I'm very pleased to welcome Yap Van Netten, Senior Researcher at the Department of Rehabilitation Academic Medical Centre in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Yap has been actively involved in the work on the International Working Group of the Diabetic Foot Guidelines as the Secretary of the Editorial Board and the Prevention Working Group. Our second speaker, Pete Lazzarini, is a Principal Research Fellow with Queensland Health and Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Pete's research focused on prevention of diabetic foot disease, hospitalisation and amputation. Welcome Yap and Pete. Thanks for having us, Samantha. Yeah, thank you, Samantha. Good, thank you. So if I can start by asking you about the burden of diabetic foot disease. In one of your joint papers, you discussed that diabetes is ranked in the top 10 of all medical conditions. And as a consequence, prevention and evidence-based management of the diabetic foot ulcer is extremely important if we want to minimise the burden of it on patients and the healthcare system. Could I ask you both to describe the five key elements that support the prevention of the ulcer, which are reflected in the current diabetic foot guidelines? Uh, Perhaps, Pete, do you want to start? Sure. Thanks, Samantha. Um, Perhaps I, uh, because YARP is the sort of one of the gurus of prevention research uh, and also behind the five key elements, I might just touch on the global burden around uh, the importance of why we need to prevent diabetic foot disease not only for our patients, but uh, for the globe as well. And then Yarp might touch on the the key elements themselves. Um, And the reason why it's so important is because, as you touched on, Samantha, the global diabetic foot disease footprint or or the disease burden is much, much, much larger than most people appreciate. And that's probably summed up by uh, one common figure, and that's 2%. And just like diabetic foot disease, 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but when it's 2% of the planet... Uh, mm-hmm. actually quite enormous. So the 2% figure comes from, it's a common figure that seems to come up in the literature uh, and particularly lately in some of our papers that the 2% of all people on the planet are affected by diabetic foot disease in some way, the via neuropathy or an ulcer. So it's 130 million people walking around today uh, on the planet with diabetic foot disease. 2% of all hospitalizations, 2% of all people in hospital are in hospital because of diabetic foot disease. Uh, 2% of the global disability burden is caused by diabetic foot disease, which you touched on before. And around 2% of the global healthcare costs are attributed to uh, the diabetic foot disease. So 2% seems to be a figure that resonates. Um, it mm. uh, seems small, but it's actually quite enormous. And that sort of sums up diabetic foot disease, but also why diabetic foot disease is so vitally important when it comes to the prevention and management of it. But I guess the good news, and this is where YARP will come in, is that uh, if we, we do some of these five key elements and some of the other evidence-based practice principles, we can actually reduce the 2% to 1%. Uh, and perhaps that's where, YARP, uh, you might want to talk about uh, some of those five key elements. Yeah. So thank you, YARP. Do you want to come in at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think 
Pete clearly outlined that that prevention of food ulcers is really important. If we want to reduce the burden, the, the biggest bang for bucks is in, in making sure that people do not get a food ulcer because without a food ulcer, there are no hospitalizations, there are no amputations, and you don't need all these extra costs that, that you would need um, when a food ulcer happens. Uh, and within the, the international guidelines and also seen in, in various national guidelines are five key elements that we think are, are feasible and manageable um, for both clinicians and patients to, to focus on uh, in order to prevent as good as possible food ulcers from happening. Um, and, and they are, first of all, identifying the at-risk food and then secondly, regularly inspecting and examining it. So you need to know if a food from a person with diabetes is actually at risk of food ulceration because the higher the risk, uh, the more careful the patient needs to be and the more preventative care they would need. But if the risk is very low, um, then generally also in looking at your cost-effective strategy, um, not too much care is needed. So you need to start with identifying it, and it can be done with two or three very simple tests, knowing the neuropathy, knowing a peripheral artery disease, and knowing the foot deformities and the patient's history. Uh, and if the patient is at higher risk, you need to, of course, examine it more frequently. And you need to also examine more aspects of the food specifically, such as the footwear and someone's self-care and self-management. And that leads to the third cornerstone, which is educating a patient, family, but also other healthcare professionals um, about what is good food self-care, what is good food self-management, and then trying to make sure that your patient understands and is actually capable of doing that self-management. Hmm. And education is always, it is always debate about because there is no evidence that shows you that education itself will prevent a foot ulcer. Uh, and we, we acknowledge that in our system and reviews, we cannot find evidence that shows that education uh, prevents the foot ulcer. But on the other hand, you need the education in order for a person to understand and in order for a person to act upon the, the self-management strategies and the footwear strategies that are shown um, to prevent these foot ulcers. So you will always need to educate your patients and you need to make sure that the education matches your individual person, their health literacy, their gender, their cultural background. So education is not uh, straightforward. It's rather complex and you need to tailor it to the individual. Mm -hmm. And then the two key cornerstones about treatment are, first of all, ensuring routine wearing of appropriate footwear. And then the appropriateness of the specific footwear depends on the characteristics of your patients and their feet. And if there are risk factors available that you can treat, such as abundant colors or other um, pre-signs of ulceration, you, of course, need to treat them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, is there a sense that we should be presuming that every patient with diabetes is at risk in some way in terms of um, getting diabetic foot disease? Well, well, every person with diabetes is at, at a higher risk compared to a person without diabetes. Um, but, but the question is always how big is the risk and when do you start intervening? Because if the mm -hmm. risk is, is relatively low, do you need to have a lot of intervention that add to the burden of self-care and self-management of a person? Or do you need to try and wait until the risk is higher um, and then make sure that you have your effective strategies um, available? So yes, every person is at risk, but because the risk can is 
can be highly different within persons with diabetes, it is important to, to make sure you stratify within a person with diabetes. And I think every person with diabetes needs to be aware that they are at increased risk of foot problems, of foot disease, which may lead up to amputation. Um, but the risk is not immediate and, and straightforward for, for some, whereas for others, the risk can be really high. And, and those are the ones that should know that they are at high risk and what they can do to, to reduce that risk straight away. Mm, okay, thank you. That, that's really helpful. Um, Yap, in your recent publication, together with James Woodburn and Seiko Bus, you discussed that ulcer prevention is an underexposed area of research and clinical practice. Can I ask why you think that? Yeah, yeah, of course, because we, yeah, we as as we wrote and then we've spent some time thinking about it. Um, uh, we're, we're fascinated about prevention, and we think if you prevent the food also from happening, there's so much um, later on that you that you prevent in in the disease, in the hospitalizations, in the amputations. So why not start much earlier? Um, but despite that, we still don't see that really reflected in, in the research and in, in clinical practice. Um, so, so we have had many discussions with, with, with colleagues, with patients, with, with other clinicians, uh, and we've listed a few barriers where we think that the, that are potential reasons why also prevention is not prioritized. And they are within the persons with diabetes, they are within the clinicians, they are within the researchers, and they are within industry. Um, and, and one key of them is the prevention paradox, which is you need to do a lot of things in order not to get an outcome. Um, and that really is an, um, that, that can be seen as a performance avoidance goal because there is something that you do not want to reach. So you're never working towards something that you can celebrate. If you have an ulcer, you can celebrate when the ulcer is healed and when you're in remission. Yeah. But when you're in your remission and you stay in remission, there's not much you can you can celebrate all your work towards is, is avoiding an outcome from happening. Mm. Um, and that is costing a lot of energy and that that's also uh, associated with, with more negative self-esteem or even depression, such performance avoidance goals. Um, and it also, as a clinician, it's not as, as gratifying as healing a really complex foot ulcer. So the, the, the key clinicians dedicated to the foot are the ones who are doing the, who are, um, are the firemen who, who kill the fires, but we need the smoke alarms to work and sort of warn us that something is happening. Um, but it's it's less interesting to be a smoke alarm, and that could be a big barrier in, in not priori prioritizing the ulcer prevention. So what we probably need are more smart goals. So celebrate one year in remission, celebrate two years in remission, um, and, and make sure that it becomes interesting for patients to, to be ulcer-free, but also create more positive goals, such as um, focusing on mobility and the increased mobility after your ulcer is healed and to reflect on that and to probably measure it and show to your patients that they're actually more mobile than they were a year before, which could also you as a clinician give you um, more positive feedback that you're actually doing something um, that helps your patient and then make, make sure you show it. Uh, and for, for industry, um, that, that becomes interesting if there are technologies that actually will result in some sort of profit because now the keys of prevention are none of them um, lead to any product or any profit, um, which also reduces the interest of, of industry, um, which is 
which is contrary to the wound healing products, of course, where there's, of course, also some financial incentive to focus on the also healing. So we also need pro smart products that help industry to also get a bit of benefit and also prevention. And we will all benefit if we reduce the burden, um, but we need to make sure that that benefit will be visible and will be felt by the patients, the clinicians, the researchers and industry. So no small task then, really. That, that's no, quite it's, a... it, it's an enormous task. Yeah. Um, but but I think we, we, we've definitely stepped up to the task and you see that prevention is, is becoming a more a more serious part within diabetic foot disease. Uh, and and let's, let's just keep pushing it and keep seeing where, where we'll end up. So you talked a little bit earlier, Yap, about, you know, the importance of treating every patient as an individual. And that kind of brings me on to thinking about personalised medicine in the prevention of diabetic foot problems. You know, would you say this also represents a paradigm shift in thinking? And, and what would it take in clinical practice in order to enable this more personalised approach, would you say? Yeah, it's, it's, it's two things. It's on the one hand, it's a big paradigm shift. And on the other hand, it's something that we we probably all do on a daily basis as a clinician because as a clinician you look at your patient and you treat the patient based on what you see in front of you um, but all our, our guidelines and all our protocols are really broad and are based on on general recommendations for a lot of broad broad group of patients mm -hmm. so so where we need the paradigm shift is to um to help clinicians to, to make choices on that individual basis that are not based on your clinical gut feeling or that are not based on um, what you see here and, and how you are trained, um, which may differ from what, what will happen in, in um, the region next to you or, or in even the, the, the carer next to you. Um, so what we need is, is we need guidelines and we need help in, in how to personalize this treatment. How do you make these personalized choices and how do you make them based on on the evidence and i think that's the paradigm shift that we need we need to um, describe which choices do you make for which patients and when and in, in also prevention it, it's really it's too broad we do we, we give them good footwear and then we we hope patients will will run off but good footwear depends on the circumstances that you're in depends on your social situation depends maybe on the time of year um, so even within footwear, you need to have these guidelines available or have these um, have such an outline on how to personalize the specific treatment. And I think that's the paradigm shift that, that we need to work towards to make sure that we all do this, but we do it in a structured way so that every patient gets the care that they deserve. Yeah, yeah. And also what's important is making it person-centred or patient-centred, as you talked about. And, a, you know, Yuma have done a, a recent document looking at person-centred management, um, which is kind of push that forwards as well. So uh, it's a really important aspect of the management of patients uh, with diabetic foot disease. So thank you, Yap. Uh, Pete, perhaps I can come to you now. Um, as a podiatrist by training and a researcher with a spe special interest in prevention of diabetic foot disease, do you think there's enough emphasis on prevention in research and clinical practice? Uh, that's a very good question, Samantha, and with a very short answer of no. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, there's, there's nowhere near emphasis on diabetic foot disease research in general, let alone uh, research on prevention of diabetic foot disease. And if you considered, although this is probably a bit of a pipe dream, but uh, we'd like to think that research funding provided to any condition should be somewhat equivalent to the to the proportion of the burden it causes 
we know that's not always the case, but if that was the case, diabetic foot disease receives perhaps one five hundredth of the research funding that it should. And I say that because, um, again, uh, as I talked about before, the uh, the two percent figure, the uh, around two percent of the global disease burden um, is is made up from diabetic foot disease. Uh, yet, diabetic foot disease receives probably an estimated less than 0.004% of global health research funding. So that's about mm. one in 500 um, of the research funding it perhaps should do if it was funded uh, equivalent to the burden. But then you think of the poor cousin of, as Yarp's touched on, of diabetic foot research, which is poor old prevention. Um mm which uh, according to um, uh, a really lovely paper by um, Yarp and Seiko and, and Jim that you talked about earlier, but Samantha receives probably around 3% of the total current diabetic foot disease research funding. It's pretty clear that the prevention of diabetic foot disease research receives uh, nowhere near the funding um, it, uh, it needs. And that's probably why uh, we've got a very high prevalent and recurrent condition that causes a lot of hospitalisation and disability and amputations on our hands because we're not spending the required amount of money to prevent it. Um, but in saying that, as Yarp's touched on, it's, it's certainly not gloom and doom. Things are getting better um, with people like Yarp and Seiko in, in Europe and David Armstrong and Bajan Najafi in the States and uh, Neil Reeves in the UK and, and co everywhere. John Gollidge in the Australia are starting to get some funding in for research for prevention in diabetic foot disease, which... Uh, is uh, not only great for uh, prevention of diabetic-related foot disease and research, but it's starting to translate to uh, to fire alarms, as, as uh, in mm. many cases the ARPS talked about, uh, such things like home temperature monitoring becoming easier to detect hotspots in feet and impending ulcers and smart insoles and moon boots and things to uh, not only to detect abnormal pressure but to hopefully do something about it by offloading it. And mobile phone apps galore in terms mm. of... Uh, trying to motivate patients to uh, self-care. So um, in terms of, uh, that was a very long-winded answer to no. Um, <laughs> we need a lot, more, a lot more research, uh, a lot more uh, funding of research that will then hopefully translate also to clinical practice as well. Mm. Okay. Pete, I think it was you that touched on this notion of um, remission um, earlier on. And I'm just wondering, we see a lot about um, diabetic foot disease and its consequences being compared to cancers. Is that a helpful analogy, do you think? I actually think it is. I think uh, remission is a, a concept and a term that uh, David Armstrong introduced, and I think it's really poignant and, um, as you said, sort of, uh, sort of aligns with cancer. Uh, diabetic foot disease has um, a 50%, um, unfortunately, mortality rate after five years. Um, and uh, it's a very highly recurrent condition. It's around 40% um, after healing within 12 months will recur. So to try and rather than saying what we're used to, which is you've healed and, and the patient thinks they're cured and they can go back to doing what they were, I think sort of the, the term remission really places in, in the patient's head and our head that the, we're always uh, should be alert, perhaps not alarmed, but alert to impending um, exacerbations of diabetic foot disease. So it's not we're cured and we go off and do what we want, but we need to continually be cautious to monitor our, our feet. So I think remission is a, actually a really useful term in diabetic foot disease for patients in particular. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. 
So I just wanted to move on and ask you both your thoughts about the main barriers in prioritising ulcer prevention, but particularly in relation to both specialists and non-specialists. So, uh, Yap, um, perhaps I can come to you first. Yes, it's it, it's partly what I discussed earlier. It's it's about the difference between being a fireman who who has to heal this really complex wound versus being a smoke alarm who has to. Be, be alert and vigilant for, for your patient, but then not really um, having this, this massive celebration when, when it's going well um, against, against all odds. Um, and so, so the key specialists in the fields are the, are the firemen working uh, in, in the multidisciplinary hospitals in the centers of expertise. But I think that's also the other barrier in prioritizing. It's that it's a bit siloed, the care. So you have a highly trained multidisciplinary expertise team in the clinic that that is dedicated to healing the ulcer and then as soon as the ulcer is healed patients are referred back to to the community um, where care is not specialized where care is not multidisciplinary and where you 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 are treated by people who also need to see other diseases and because of that silo it's it's really hard to to work on the ulcer prevention because the, the, the key experts are actually working on the ulcer treatment and we need to break that silo and we need to have a more integrated pathway of, of prevention and care and make sure that these experts actually work together and that patients are seen also after they're also healed by their team, by the multidisciplinary team, which they may really trust and have a really good bonding with after they've done such a good job in healing their ulcer. So we need to, to find a way in order to um, improve the, the communication and the care and the pathways between the specialist and the non-specialist. Okay, thank you. And, and Pete, uh, what would you add to, to that? Yeah, I'd, uh, I completely agree with you. I'd say one of the main barriers is perhaps, uh, and perhaps one of the solutions, but the main bar- one of the main barriers at the heart of foot disease problem, as many know, is neuropathy, but we, we, we tend to forget about neuropathy a bit. Uh, and uh, Dr. Paul Brand coined the phrase over 60 years ago, the sort of godfather of diabetic foot disease research and leprosy research, the neuropathy was like losing the gift of pain. Um, so that means there's 130 million people walking around without the gift of pain at the moment. And without that gift of pain, um, patients often don't recognise that they've got a diabetic foot disease problem and therefore delay treatment and often don't complain to their doctors. And without that, those complaints from patients, doctors often don't recognise the size of the, the diabetic foot disease problem in their community to then campaign um, to associations and governments. And without campaigning from doctors and associations, governments aren't aware of the enormous diabetic foot disease problem out there that needs more funding for solutions. So uh, I sometimes think neuropathy is at the heart of not only the problem, but also probably the solutions as well in terms of it's a lack of pain that sort of leads to the lack of complaints and the lack of campaigning and, and in the end, the lack of funding to try and address the situation when it comes to diabetic foot disease. And then on the back of that, the, the funding's not there to incentivise uh, diabetic foot disease prevention and management for non-diabetic foot disease health practitioners or those who aren't really interested. In, and without, as Yarp touched on before, a, a sort of a magic pill um, to reduce diabetic foot disease or cure it, diabetic foot disease is actually quite a laborious uh, condition to treat. We can treat it well, but it requires multiple disciplines and in multiple sectors using multiple therapies. So it's quite laborious to treat. So for people who aren't that interested, 
um, it, it's not that sexy. Um, and uh, as we all know, if neuropathy is not sexy, well, wounds aren't incredibly sexy and put feet on top of it, that's not sexy either. So <laughs> no. um, perhaps uh, we need to bring sex appeal back to diabetic foot disease. <laughs> not sure it was even there. Interesting but, uh, concept. <laughs> yeah, neuropathy may be uh, one of the big barriers mm-hmm. to diabetic foot disease. So I'm I'm just thinking of the terminology we use. We talk about multidisciplinary teamwork, but there are other terms such as interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. And I wonder if, as Yap, you were talking about silo thinking. I wonder if it, even the the terms we use, you know, if we can change those, maybe think of interdisciplinary teamwork. Would that help? Do you think? Yeah, it's always. Communication and in the words we use, I think, always influence the way the way we act. And, and it's it's the example of remission where where we have this discussion about using different wording, which may actually change our acting. Um, and, and I think Yuma has this excellent document on on multi and interdisciplinary care, um, which which I think and, and even I keep using multidisciplinary, although there's good arguments to show that it should be interdisciplinary and that should include the patient as a full member of the team as well. Um, in, in this case, I also think we're, we're doing it really, but we really, everyone caring needs to be aware that no one can care for this problem on their own. Mm. Um, and, and that is that really needs to be in, ingrained in, in our thinking. And that's something that we, we often struggle with, I think, as, as humans, because we all like to contribute, but we no one really can do this on their own. We, we need to be together. And so, so moving towards interdisciplinary, yes, will help. And we just simply need to keep stressing that no one can do this on their own. We need to be in here together. We need to support each other to, to work towards these, these good outcomes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So we've been talking about guidelines to guide practice and, you know, the role of specialists and also non-specialist healthcare professionals. But how can we engage, you know, these these individuals in the prevention of diabetic foot ulcers? You know, will guidelines help that? Will that help engagement, do you think? Yeah, perhaps I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I'm thinking. So, uh, gu- guidelines, I mean, guidelines, we, we mainly write guidelines for the people who, who care with it on a daily basis. And, and we hope that they, they empower them to, to say, look, this is, this is the guideline. This is how we, how we need to treat. And then the people who, who actually are the carers already, then they, they use those guidelines to, to show to others, this is, this is how, we, how we need to treat and this is how we need to do it. Um, so I'm not sure if the guidelines itself will, will create the engagement. It really is about the people who, who use the guidelines um, and who, who show them to others and say, look, this is, this is what we need to do. This is what, what we can do when we work together. So, so they're, they're a tool, um, and I think they're a tool that can be used. But, but in the end, it's about the people who, who have the tool in their hands um, and how they use it in their daily practice. And Pete, what would you add to that? Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more, Samantha, from what Yarp was saying. I think we've got multiple guidelines now, which is fantastic. It's about implementing those guidelines and making it as easy as possible um, for the busy clinician on the ground to do that. And as we sort of we sort of say, is it's helping make the evidence based choice the the first choice for health professionals. So that typically involves some sort of carrot and a stick, or incentive and a sort of a and a penalty sometimes, or as our nutrition <laughs> colleagues sometimes say, a carrot stick if you. If you're smart, but um, uh, <laughs> but in Australia, that um, uh, 
that may mean or that's uh, some things we're pushing for is incentivising the care of people in uh, the, the community uh, and the private sector um, because that's where a large majority of our, our workforce is um, to not only just pay for more fee-for-services but also perhaps uh, fee-for-quality outcomes um, as well or perhaps withholding fees um, for those who aren't practising according to evidence-based practice or, or just paying those who are accredited or competent or something like that. So it's about implementing those guidelines and making it as easy as possible for clinicians to to, to, to take them up essentially and, and uh, make that evidence-based uh, practice choice their first choice. Okay, thank you. So perhaps at this point, we've been talking about a number of things around um, prevention. So Perhaps could you both summarise the key interventions that you think could prevent the recurrence of foot ulcers? Just kind of bullet point those sort of key interventions. Uh, Yap, do you want to? Yeah, I'll kick off here because um, because we we try to summarise them um, in 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 the guidelines, but also in the two systematic reviews that are are underlying the guidelines. Um, the the key intervention, which is also one of the cornerstone, is appropriate footwear. Um, because the press pressure on, on feed is an important um, risk factor, but also an important causative factor, and that pressure can be better redistributed with appropriate footwear. Um, this can be fully custom-made footwear, but this can also be a custom-made insole, or this can be extra depth footwear that, that is prefabricated, um, but still you need footwear that um, accommodates the, the shape of the foot. And if pressure reduction is a key part of your treatment in people with a previous plantar foot ulcer or in people with severe foot deformities, um, we think you should not only provide the footwear, but also measure um, if the, if it's actually reducing the pressure, because only if you measure it, um, you can see what's happening and you can talk about it. Um, but yeah, so footwear... Beca- stays the, the one of the one of the cornerstones but as soon as you provide a person with footwear um, it only helps if it's worn and so adherence to wearing footwear and interventions to improve this adherence um, are also key in here and we're now seeing some shifting attention so we haven't found much evidence for this but we do see some attention in, in educational approaches such as motivational interviewing um, in order to make people more aware of the the importance of footwear and what we also see is that we're now that you get footwear for different contexts so so we're currently we've recently developed a specific orthopedic custom-made footwear that has to be used inside the house because people take a lot of steps inside the house mm-hmm. um, without knowing that they're that they're at risk because the house feels a safe place and we've made some sort of indoor footwear that feels like soft nice indoor footwear um, that really uh, is as good as outdoor custom-made footwear in redistributing the pressure. Um, and we see that it improves adherence, and we're currently following patients to see if it also actually prevents the foot ulcers. So I think that's that's one cornerstone, and I'll pass on the baton uh, to, to, to Pete to talk about surgery, um, because that comes closer to offloading where, where Pete's expertise also lies. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Pete, do you want to go ahead? Great, thanks, yeah. But I was going to reiterate... Um, uh, the, the the offloading footwear, as Yarp said, uh, Yarp didn't um, touch on one of his babies, which is home-based temperature monitoring to uh, uh, detect early problems before they become an ulcer as well as a, a major area that uh, people are looking at and then to act in terms of reducing their activity to try and, and offload their, their plantar pressures to try and uh, 
prevent that ulcer from occurring that uh, may have been detected with the home temperature monitoring. But in terms of surgery, that's where um, uh, people generally have a, a rather significant deformity, or sometimes not, but a rather significant deformity. Uh, and in the offloading guidelines, uh, we found uh, reasonable evidence, still low quality of evidence, but uh, starting to be consistent evidence that there's a number of procedures that uh, on various specific deformities that may uh, be very useful to um, to not only heal ulcers up, but to um, to prevent their reoccurrence as well. Things like tenotomies um, for um, sort of cock toes, hammer toes, um, which are quite simple to perform um, in outpatient clinics. And then other procedures like Achilles tendon lengthening can be useful for forefoot ulcers. I should have said the tenotomies are generally for the apical or, or ulcers on the apex, whereas Achilles tendon procedures have been found to have some benefit for ulcers on the plantar forefoot. Metatarsal head resections the same, uh, and arthroplasties, joint arthroplasties have been found to be useful as well. But we do need a lot more um, uh, controlled trials on these uh, surgical interventions, and I'm happy to say there are a few underway to show um, uh, uh, clearly uh, which interventions work for uh, on which particular outcomes because we think they are working but there's still a low quality of evidence out there. Okay well we look forward to seeing the results of those um, ongoing studies. Thank you. Yeah and, and I think I think Sam because because I was uh, I was going to keep them for last but the self-management strategies that is probably the the, the the um, the intervention strategy where it is most happening at the moment in, mm. in temperature monitoring, which is a self-management strategy for, for persons to to see the ulcer coming before it's actually there. Mm. Um, and, and we've just completed the trial, so I can't speak about it yet. We're about to submit it, but we did present it recently at the DFSG where we did see some effects in our RCT, but on the other hand, it's not for everyone. Uh, and you see the newer papers on that on that topic as well. So... In self-management, what we really need to work towards is just to find out, again, in a personalized medicine, what self-management strategy will work for what person uh, and when. And that's also probably where we can see industry coming in, in, in either mobile apps or, or in making better monitoring technology um, to, to make sure that uh, the patient uses the right self-management strategies at the right, uh, at the right moment in time, because you don't need all of them all the time uh, in order to prevent these food ulcers. So this, I think that's the space where most of it will be happening in the, in the coming years. Mm, it sounds like there's quite a lot of exciting stuff happening, so we really look forward to that. Um, moving on to something slightly different, thinking about the role of associations such as the European Wound Management Association. Uh, Pete, um, perhaps I can ask you, what role do you think they have in helping to secure more, more focus on the prevention of diabetic foot ulcers? Yeah, associations have, a, have an enormous role, Samantha, uh, um, in terms of uh, what they can do um, to improve the situation. Um, and we've seen associations uh, and sort of foundations work really, really well in, in other conditions in particular. And and I think we can learn the lessons of, and when I say the other conditions, things like breast cancer, uh, awareness and cardiovascular disease, heart foundations, etc., have been have really good strategies uh, to uh, engage a focus on their particular conditions with government. Um, that I think we could perhaps take a few leaves out of, I guess, some of their playbook, um, if you will. Mm. So, um, what they seem to do well, and what associations 
uh, seem to, to focus on and, and perhaps we could focus on and, and Orma in, in Europe could take a, uh, is taking a lead in that is, is to, to come up with um, cut through messages, I guess, that uh, the community and, uh, and, uh, and government uh, uh, become engaged with. Um, but it's not just the cut through messages, it's ensuring a whole heap of like-minded associations are on the same page and speaking with the same voice with those messages, which humour do really, really well. But it's also not just the, the the coming up with the banging on doors about the problem. It's also having sort of well-considered evidence-based plans in the background that if you're lucky enough to then get the engagement of government to uh, to be able to have plans in place to uh, roll out uh, the prevention strategy, the management strategies to be able to deliver on what you were hoping for from the funding you were hoping to get. Um, so mm. um, in Australia, for example, we've had moderate success. We'd like to have a lot more, but we haven't had terrible success, I guess, in terms of getting a number of associations on board, uh, such as Diabetic Foot Australia, um, Australian Diabetes Society, Diabetes Australia and Co, uh, and the Wound Management Association of Australia down here in terms of uh, a goal of ending avoidable amputations in a generation in Australia. And that seems to have engaged um, the community, but politicians in particular seem to, it seems to resonate with them. Um, which is great. So it's starting to open up some doors and we've developed, in fact, when YARP was in Australia, he was pivotal in developing a national evidence-based plan, a cost-effective um, strategy to uh, to uh, implement in Australia to try and, if government gave us the funding, to um, reduce uh, these amputations in Australia. So um, so we, we're going to do a lot more, um, but it's getting... These associations working collaboratively with a with a common voice and a common message and common plans to enact. But the other thing that I, we'd love to have is, um, and other, I guess, conditions seem to uh, to do quite nicely is engage celebrities or sporting stars or whatever in mm. terms of getting the message out there to the community in particular um, to then engage government as well. So it'd be nice to uh, to not only have everyone on the same page, but having um, celebrities or sporting stars uh, singing from the same hymn sheet in terms of getting the messages out to try and engage uh, more focus on the prevention of diabetic foot ulcers. Yeah, and, and picking up on this collaborative working YAP, what, what do you think is key for associations to try and facilitate that collaborative working? Yeah, I think I think as Pete, Pete outlined, um, that, that associations really have the power to connect. They have the power to connect clinicians they have the power to connect the the, the end users the, but also the, they can play the political game and they have strong links with industry um, and i think that's that's where associations come into play they, they can connect all the different key players in the field and, and try to make sure that it's not only the evidence that the researchers researchers try to try to deliver but there's also implementation plans and there's also um, the willingness to implement them uh, and then the money available to actually facilitate those implementations in clinical practice. So the associations are really the key in, in bringing everyone who, who has a role um, at the same table and to make sure that everyone contributes from, from their background and their strengths. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what UMA is doing really well in Europe and we see it from different organizations throughout the world. And as, as Pete just said, Diabetic Food Australia, it's one of the few really key national um, bodies that focuses on the food, but they make sure that all the other associations that do play a role 
um, can can participate um, because that's what associations can and should do: bring in bring in the people and bring in the workforce to actually get something done and get something changed. Yeah, I think you know through our conversation, both of you have touched on sort of the importance of investing in research. So in that kind of implies that engagement from colleagues and industry is is one of the key areas to successful outcomes. So I'm just wondering what you both think about how industry engagement might help to set the focus on ulcer prevention. Uh, Pete, um, do you want to, to start? Yeah, I, I think engaging with industry is uh, is is critical, um, Samantha. And and yeah, I've talked about it before uh, a little bit. Is is trying to um, help industries. Uh, uh, I guess see uh, uh, profitability um, in evidence-based practice that not only uh, improves patient outcomes and reduces burdens and, and costs to government, but also uh, obviously for industry, it's about the bottom line of, of bringing some profitability to their particular uh, company. So it actually sounds a little bit simplistic, but um, I was chatting to a much more learned colleague than myself uh, last year, actually, in terms of how we, you know, how we can really improve diabetic foot disease uh, care and, and involve industry. And um, he said, we need a pill that works. Um, and that's what's happened in a lot of other areas is, is pharma companies, uh, a pill that works in terms of effectiveness, but also uh, in, in terms of coverage and uh, profitability for patients. So with industry, it's I guess it's, it's, it's really engaging with them in terms of articulating the problem to industry. So the industry is, is, is completely aware of, of the problem and therefore uh, engaging with the solutions and the helping industry with the innovation, the research and the development to ensure that the innovation solutions um, are there, but they also work and are evidence to work in, in, in well-controlled trials. So once we get uh, hopefully industry um, to develop a pill or a device or a dressing, which in the dressing space and device space is really starting to happen, that demonstrates cost effectiveness in high quality RCTs, then it's amazing how how good industry um, is then at selling evidence-based practice and much better at selling evidence-based practice than uh, we are or governments are. So engaging industry, I think, is critical to uh, really uh, reducing the diabetic foot disease burden uh, in the next generation or over the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and from your point of view, Yap, what's, what's your thoughts? Yeah, again, I, I completely agree. I mean, we've had quite some conversations over time, which is why we think agree seem to agree all the time. Um, but what we need to, to create something is that um, that also prevention becomes beneficial also for industry to invest. In. And what we're seeing right now is that um, either this, this, not much evidence, but then because there's not much competition, some some industry can can really focus on it and say, look, this is this is work. But we have to probably acknowledge that there will not not be one magic pill for also prevention. It will remain multidisciplinary. There's nothing that works for all. So so industry should collaborate with with many different people, and then we can find out that it will be beneficial. And we need to, to change our thinking um, in that we need money upfront. You need to invest money first and then later reap the profits by not getting the food ulcer and not getting the hospitalizations. Mm. Um, but we often see a reluctance from reimbursement systems to pay this upfront. And that, that may that makes sure that industry is not really going in there because they, if they have to do the investment, 
um, and then the, the healthcare system will profit. Why, why would they? So we need to, again, get rid of those silos and, and make sure that if the profits are later on, then we invest first, but then industry gets their fair share in investing and then industry will become more interested in investing more and create better treatments. And then you see comparison and then you, you get proper evidence. So, so that that's why we yeah we need to we need to start putting the money where, where our mouth is, which is we need to invest first, and then later on as a, as a society we will reap the profits by reducing the burden. Um, but we need to invest at at the beginning. Yeah. So the notion of invest to save, you know, that's been used in in terms of prevention of pressure ulcers or pressure injuries, and we, and we see that talked about. So it's an interesting um, concept, but relatively simple but as you say challenging um so perhaps i'd just like to ask you both uh, finally what are the key take-home messages for our listeners particularly linked to the prevention and management of individuals at risk of or with an existing diabetic foot ulcer pete do you want to start sure um I might speak more globally, but 2%, I think, is the take-home message. And, <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, and and it can be 1%. And why I say 1% is that we know that we can reduce hospitalizations, amputations and costs by uh, around half if we implement what we know works already in the research, which is already in the, the guidelines that Yarp's talked about into clinical practice. But to do that, as we've talked about, we need to incentivise making evidence-based practice the first choice of practice and uh, and or penalise somewhere along the lines as well. But if we really want to end avoidable amputations in a generation, we need to have uh, governments and industry invest in uh, research to prevent diabetic foot disease. So to come up with the new solutions, the new tools, techniques, devices, dressings, pills, that will uh, reduce not only from 2 to 1%, but then to hopefully no percent in the next generation when it comes to diabetic foot disease. So I think uh, really the take-home message from me is the burden's huge, but we can reduce it by half if we do what we are in the guidelines now uh, and we can reduce it to hopefully nothing uh, in the, the nearish future um, if we invest in research and development. And that sounds like a pipe dream, but uh, 20 years ago that's what we were saying about things like HIV as well and um, it's certainly not the burden that it once was. So hopefully if we get all the smart people in the room, the associations, the collaborations you talked about before, Samantha, and point people in the one direction, I think we can achieve some great things together, not only for the globally, but for patients as well. And that's where YARP has talked about the getting multidisciplinary clinicians together, working on the same problem usually produces a fantastic outcome for the patient. Good, thank you. Yes, easy to remember. Two percent, everybody. <laughs> and yeah, what about you? Yeah, I think um, I think this this I mean, there's many points we've been talking about this for quite some time now. But one of the things to take home is that no one can do this on their own. Um, and if you feel like you're on your own, go out and find your allies uh, in this. And your patient can be an ally. Um, they need to be educated and they need to get the feeling that they can actually, that they have an influence, that they can prevent their next ulcer. Because often patients feel that they don't have control, but but they do, but they need to be guided in how to find the control. Um, and find your allies in, in your colleagues. Look for them in community if you're not in community or if you're in community Look for your allies in, in the multidisciplinary teams and try to work together. No one will solve this problem on their own. You really have to be the, be in here 
um, together. And, and the second thing that we need to take home is we need to find out how to make it interesting to be a smoke alarm. And that means celebrate with your patients if they're one year old so free, um, celebrate increased mobility. So look beyond healing the ulcer and look beyond staying ulcer free, which is an avoidance goal, but look for goals that you can achieve and that you can celebrate with your patient that they're now able to go out with their grandchildren again, that they're able to walk much further than they were a year ago. Find those ways to to celebrate what you're achieving rather than simply avoiding problems from happening. And, and if, if you do that together and if you then celebrate the good goals together, I think we should be a long way uh, in order to reach what Pete says, go from 2% to 1%. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much both for your insights. So I've got three words um, to summarise that. 2% allies and smoke alarms. And if you've just joined in at the end of the podcast, you may not know what that even means, but those are the key important messages. uh, So thank you. So before we close this episode, I'm pleased to announce that this year, Yuma, supported by Ergo Medical, is providing two grants for innovative projects related to diabetic foot ulcers. Please visit the Yuma website for more information. That's www.ewma.org. You have been listening to the second episode of the Yuma podcast, focusing on the management of diabetic foot ulcers in a multidisciplinary team. Don't forget that you can listen to our previous podcast episodes on antimicrobial stewardship, atypical wounds, person-centered wound care, and more by visiting our website. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, do not forget to press like and share it with your colleagues. If you want to learn more all about UMA's activities, please visit our website and follow us on social media at UMA Wound. Until next time, thank you for listening.